brothers. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. To the Outstanding Ohioan Show. Thank you for the Outstanding Ohioan Show. Hosted by my daddy. Hosted by my daddy. Hello. Thank you, Ryan and Sawyer, for that wonderful introduction. This is indeed the Outstanding Ohioan Show, and this is episode 54. Can have a little different twist on this episode today. Uh, in this episode, I'm being interviewed by one of my staff teammates at the Miami University Rec Center, Angus McLeod. And we talked about a whole smorgasbord of topics related to leadership and personal philosophy and talking about the recreation industry. Hello, thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohioan Show, hosted by Ron Silico. Today we have episode 55 with Seth Kramer, who is the co-owner and GM of Phoenix Bats in Plain City, Ohio. Seth, welcome to the show. Thanks, appreciate it. Really excited to do this interview. Uh, growing up in, as a child of the 80s, that's really when youth baseball transitioned from aluminum bats. And going to be talking to Seth today about how maybe that's now going back to wood bats and talking about the wood bats that they make and the customers that they work with at all levels of baseball and just talk about the quality and the craftsmanship of, of the product that they produce. Seth, if you could take our listeners on a journey, uh, where did you grow up and who were your main influences during that time? You know, actually, it's funny. I actually grew up in Connecticut. Uh, I came out here to be a Buckeye in 1985, and uh, here I sit today, 30-plus uh, years later. So, uh, you know, my background is um, started down uh, after school in banking, got into a little bit of uh, accounting operations, and from there went ahead and uh, did some sales and marketing, went back and got my MBA, was at a uh, startup company uh, for about seven and a half years, law enforcement technology company, didn't uh, end so well for me, but certainly great experience. And uh, after in 2007, um, I got the opportunity to hook up with uh, a venture capital firm here in town who was one of the uh, part owners of Phoenix Bats and said, hey, would you like to come in and take a look at this company and see if you can help, uh, help them improve and grow? And I said, where the heck is that? And they told me, well, it's right over in Plain City. And I said, never heard of it. And uh, I came out and met the guys. And, uh, and here I sit uh, this year, October, we went ninth year here at Gates Bats. Okay. Hearing that intro, Seth, uh, I've, got, I've got some questions I want to ask about how venture capital works. Because I, I have a feeling the audience would be very interested in that if, if sure. they haven't heard of it about it before uh before that uh, can you talk about some of your early influences in life and what what influences they specifically had with you sure um you know i i joke with people uh, certainly when it comes to the sports side um what is my strong suit i uh, i joke that my conditioning skills clause in baseball kicked in at nine years old um and <laughs> became a fan a fan after that uh, i grew up a yankee fan and then a met fan and moved out here to ohio and became an indians fan um, and that's where I sit today. Um, I will say, you know, certainly influences. I think um, my father was a lawyer and certainly saw the, um, you know, walking the line of integrity was very important. And certainly, um, you know, from that point, I, I've just always been a, a strong believer in customer service. That's how you win at the end of the day. And I've seen that in, in all the different careers that I've had that, you know, products are products. And, and in our industry specifically, um, you know, that's, are hard for people to differentiate. I do think we have differentiation, but certainly one way we can do it is through service. 
uh, today is a gentleman from Connecticut who I actually met here at Ohio State, came out to talk to one of my MBA classes, and he's been my business mentor uh, for a number of years now, since 2000, and the reason why is because the guy was a self-made uh, multimillionaire. Um, you know, I like his life story of how he got there. Nobody gave him anything. He did it all through hard work and dedication, and, uh, you know, those are the people that I'm certainly attracted to. Okay. Seth, if you could talk about venture capitalists, because that, that's a term that people, some people hear a lot, some people may, be, may have not heard of it. How, how do venture capitalists get involved with inventors and entrepreneurs, and, and what's their role in the process? Sure. I mean, you know, obviously there's a whole a lot of different um, venture capitalists out there in terms of what they focus. A lot of them do focus on a specific uh, industry or uh, sector. Um, the ones that certainly we connected with out here, what I like about them, NCT Ventures, who's uh, uh, in Columbus, what I liked about them is these were gentlemen who actually um, started their own business, um, made it successful, sold it off, used those proceeds um, to help create NCT Ventures, and were very focused on young companies that needed some expertise and capital to grow. Um, that's typically where you'll find venture firms fill in. It depends where in the in the cycle of the company they are. Most venture capital firms do like to come in later once the technology has been validated, um, once there's a track record. Um, typically before that, uh, the three levels of investing, they call our friends, family, and fools, which are the people who first put their money in. Um, then angel investors who are just individuals who maybe have an interest in what you're investing in, which was the case with the um, law enforcement technology company that I uh, helped found. Um, and with this one, it was really, really their involvement um, admittedly came a very different way. They were um, one of the gentlemen uh, who was an investor, the very first investor in Phoenix was their CFO. He had some nice circumstances that caused him to have to exit the business. Um, the venture capital firm uh, bought him out to help him out. Um, but they were good people and kept investing in the business because they really liked what Charlie Trudeau, our founder, was doing, believed in supporting local companies and uh, continue to invest in the company. So uh, kind of an interesting path for them, didn't really fit their sweet spot, and uh, they're no longer uh, involved in the company from an ownership standpoint. I actually uh, did buy part of their investment, and uh, as did another party, um, but certainly it was a great people to learn from about how venture operated, but they're, they're the type of venture people I, I, I like because they've done it themselves. So well, venture people get a, a ugly word, it tends to be an ugly word in the media. I don't think that's uh, very fair, especially for these type of guys who really did it themselves. And we've got some other great venture capitalists here in town as well who do focus on um, uh, social issues and things like that. So it's not all uh, not all bad as the media likes to make it out to be. Right. It, and I don't know if it was this, the situation in this case. I, I've heard a lot of times with venture capital, capital They'll have, and it sounds like you got involved through the company because they, they want some oversight and, and can help with the manage, management and processes. Is that fair to yep, say? Most definitely. That is very fair to say. That was okay. exactly, they really, in candor, brought me in to figure out if this was a business that was salvageable or if it was a business that, um, because of where they're at and the progress that was made, maybe it was time to shut it down. And uh, But they did believe in the people and they believed in me. And uh, so here we sit, uh, nine, almost nine years later, and uh, and doing all right for ourselves. Growth continue to grow every year, so that's a, that's a great thing. If if you're someone that's sitting on the other side of the aisle uh, that is looking for an investment for an for an idea or to grow their business, what what do you recommend should be the approach to try and get venture capital involved in their operation? 
Well, I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's really about where they are in the life cycle of their company. Um, so I think it's very difficult unless you're, you know, a tech company, something out in Silicon Valley or a medical device that you know, really has a strong uh, multiple return for the venture uh, company. But really somebody who's got a, an idea is more likely to um, have investors who are angel investors. These are, again, individuals who um, have, you know, probably made it wherever they were and are looking to invest in early stage companies, very beginnings. And so some of the things that venture capital uh, people are interested in, uh, you know, a, a reasonable track record of revenues and profit and things like that, um, or at least the potential for such, the angel investor is not going to be as typically as uh, critically focused on. They're probably more focused on the idea. Um, but really, for the people who have an idea of their own and want to get it rolling, any investor is going to look to see, first of all, that they're committed. So if you're doing this part-time and it's kind of a side thing, the likelihood of getting somebody to invest in you certainly is dramatically reduced. They want to see, even if you don't financially have the money to put into the business, at least that you're putting in, they sweat equity mm-hmm. and that, this, that you're serious about it. Um, and again, the very first investors typically are what they call friends, families, and fools, right? The, mm-hmm. the people who are closest to you, who maybe it's a, they're investing because of you versus the idea, and that's typically where the first money's come from. But if you if you want to reach the venture capital people, prove your technology in whatever arena it is, get some customers, and you know then you have a more compelling case because it's been validated by people who actually pay to uh, to have that technology. Okay. Um. Going back to Phoenix Bats, can, it, it's such, it looks like such a neat story on the website, and I'm sure you can expand it. How, how did Charlie Trudeau start start the company? What, what was his vision, and, and how did he get involved with getting well, it up I mean, and running? You know, for Charlie, it was really it was funny. It was kind of a, he fell into it, per se. Um, Charlie was, a, uh, after graduating from Ohio State, uh, really became a wood craftsman. He was remodeling houses. Um, if you're not familiar with the Columbus area, we have some beautiful old homes. Um, and he would go in and remodel those homes. And when you were doing such, a lot of times you had beautiful old staircases that had spindles in them. And when you're working on the house from the 1800s, uh, Home Depot and Lowe's does not tend to carry those pieces. Mm-hmm. So Charlie was actually recreating these spindles by hand. Um, at the same time, he was playing vintage baseball. These are guys who play by 1860s rules. And if your um, listeners are unaware of such, these are guys who play without a glove. Pitching was underhanded back then. And uh, if you need a bat from the 1860s, once again, you're not going to Dick's to find a bat from that era. <laughs> so Charlie was playing for a team at our historical society here in Columbus. And they said, hey, Charlie, we know you're a wood craftsman. Do you think you could make us some bats? So Charlie actually started his first bats by really looking at pictures uh, online and, you know, getting a hold of any bats that he could from that era, which you can imagine was pretty difficult. Um, but it really was a, a passion for him. He, he wanted the challenge. He played vintage baseball, wanted to support that community. And uh, he started doing more and more bats to the point where in 1996 he had a decision to make. It was either going to be bats or it was going to be re- remodeling houses. He couldn't do both, and he chose bats. Mm-hmm. So at uh, what what did you see or hear? How, how was the company growing and before your involvement? And then what did you do after you came on board to, to grow it further and expand? Well, I think, you know, the company was challenged in the fact that it was really two people who were involved on a regular basis, one gentleman in production and Charlie up front. Um, you know, my role to come in was probably use some of my background from business and my MBA, and that was to look at things more critically in terms of, you know, what type of customer should we be going after, what's a, what should we be charging, what are our materials costs, 
you know, kind of a little bit of the blocking and tackling that when, you know, you're somebody like Charlie who's trying to man everything up front, you don't have as much time to, uh, to focus on. So I really started to put some of those disciplines in, look at different ways we could do some processes, um, you know, and kind of build it from there. And sure enough, uh, you know, we've grown quite a bit, probably about fivefold in terms of the number of units that we do. Um, and so that's, that, to me, that was, it, it was kind of easy. You, you come in and you sort of make sure you pick and you find the, uh, the easiest things to correct and tackle and make improvements to our website has certainly been a big, uh, big help, um, get the right people in and get the right people doing the right things at the right time. Something I'm curious about, Seth, is in baseball, most leagues do use aluminum bats, although the, the tide's changing a little bit on that. Louisville Slugger's been the renowned name forever for the people that do use wood bats. And you spoke about differentiation a little bit ago. How how have you been able to get into that niche market and, and really prove that differentiation, prove that customer service, and improve that quality, and, and at the same time grow the sales? Well, I think you know a big part of that goes back to service, um, which is what you touched on. Um, if I look at the competitors uh, in our space, admittedly, I think a lot of them are you know people who grew up playing the sport and think it's a really cool idea to make baseball bats, um, not recognizing kind of what really goes into it. Um, so you know, we were fortunate in the fact that we had a gentleman who is very uh, understood wood. Um, we have a, the most advanced bat making machine in the world, so for consistency. Nobody's going to beat us. So then, from there, it's just you know, it's it's figuring out um, you know how to differentiate. And so for us, one of the things we've done is we give people a ten day money back guarantee. If you get a bat, you don't like it, give us a holler back. You know, send it back, swap it in for another bat. We give every customer one shot at that title because my idea was with an item that's tactile that you're going to have a hard time differentiating it by just looking at uh, on the web versus even other companies. So why not give people a chance to try it, to use it, and see what they like, uh, like or dislike about it. Um, so that's been one way um, that I've been very big on, and it's, again, the service aspect. When somebody breaks about, we want to hear from them, and we want to help determine why it broke and treat them fairly in terms of if it's a, you know, if it's a wood quality issue, we're going to replace it. If it's an issue of the, uh, a user error, then we do expect a you know, customer to take some ownership uh, for that issue. And that's probably the most challenging part of our business, but I just believe if you, you treat people fairly, um, that, that you'll build a, a, a base. And you know, we're getting a lot of customers these days. When I ask them how they found out about us, they're saying, look, I went on a blog about baseball bats, and I have yet to found a, find a bad thing said about your company, so I want to give you a try. Oh, that's great. How? What kind of inroads are being made? Because I, I, I hear this all the time that youth leagues, I know colleges have talked about it. Uh, going back to the wood bats, the, the, I guess the con of that has always been, well, we went to aluminum because it was cheaper, they lasted longer. Right. Uh, what, what, how have you been able to push back on that and, and show people that wood bats – are the better bat to use for yep. a number of reasons. Well, you know, it's been interesting. So since I've been here, um, there's been some things that have happened from the rule side that have certainly supported the um, resurgence and renaissance of wood bats. So one example is um, they, if you recall, and your and your listeners recall, metal bats became pretty dangerous. The exit velocity of the ball coming off a bat, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was to the point where it was killing people. 
Um, and so that danger was addressed a number of years back where there was a certification developed in baseball. It's called BB Core. Um, and this certification basically essentially is making the metal bat perform like a wood bat. It's dumbing down the metal bat. Um, with this dumbing down, I actually thought it would really harm our business. I thought, oh, great, now we've got a direct competitor to a wood bat. But actually, it's improved our business because what happened is these metal bat manufacturers, well, they've dumbed down the bats. They can't get them to perform equally to a wood bat. So you're still going to get more pop from a wood bat if you know how to use it properly. Mm-hmm. Then the other side of it was cost. The cost of the metal bats didn't go down. A lot of these metal bats are still three hundred, four hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. While a wood bat, you know, from us can be had anywhere from a first run bat from ninety five to let's say one hundred and thirty. They can buy three or four bats for the price that you can buy one metal bat. And a lot of these players are replacing their metal bat every single year. So I like to joke that if you, uh, you know, if your kid's going through four bats in a year, then maybe it's time to pick up a different sport than baseball. <laughs> We're going to teach you, uh, teach you how to hit right. Then it's up to you to do it. So again, that economic equation has actually been flipped on its head because. The wood bats really, in the grand picture, are becoming a cheaper alternative and are really teaching kids how to hit properly. And if you have aspirations of becoming a pro, you better start swinging wood at a very early age because you can ask any pro of today, and that's what they all do. Mm-hmm. Speak to that a little bit for the people that in the audience that don't play baseball. The, the difference between the sweet spot on an aluminum bat and you mentioned the necessary fundamentals of hitting the sweet spot on a wood bat oh, sure. and how that can help you as a player in the long run. Yep. Well, I mean, you know, the, the wood bat, the metal bats, um, they really mask um, because they have very large sweet spots. So it doesn't really teach a player where to hit at the optimal point to create the most energy. Again, this is just a simple physics equation. The more, you know, the more energy that gets transferred to the ball, the further the ball is going to go. So the downside of metal bats has been that issue that it really – you know, it masks flaws in swings, and it masks, um, you know, flaws in where you should hit on a bat. So with the wood bat, especially with kids, if you ever look at a kid who swings a metal bat, most of them, the bats are stupid light, artificially light. So all these kids have a swing that almost looks like a golf swing, low to high, and they're hitting fly balls instead of line drives. What a properly weighted wood bat, which is the critical term, properly weighted, um, allows the kid to drive the ball, which is what it's all about. And they'll be driving balls into the gap instead of into the outfielder's net. So, you know, that's been the that's been the real big thing about wood bats, and it goes beyond that. It's not just about having a properly weighted bat for the age that you are. It also goes into having the right type of wood based upon the hitter you are. So when people contact us, we're not asking them, you know, one of the first questions is not how you hit, it's how you miss it. Because we know at the high school level and up, if they tend to miss hit off the end of the bat, a maple bat's going to be a terrible choice for them. It doesn't have any flex to it, which is what you need to alleviate the shock. So if you've ever seen in a pro game where the barrel head goes flying off, typically a maple bat, and they typically hit it off the very end. Hmm. Conversely, if you're the type of hitter who tends to hit further down the barrel when you miss it, a maple bat would be the right choice for you because it's going to be the strongest wood. So if you tend to miss hit further down, go with maple. If you tend to miss hit off the end, go with ash. And if you're a guy like me who's just not that good, you probably want to go with birch because birch has uh, closer, in, you know, closer in strength to maple but does have some of the flexibility of an ash bat. I will say the downside to ash is obviously that if you don't hit it on the proper side of the bat where the grain lines are stacked, um, you have a greater chance of breaking it. So for high school kids, I'm a big proponent of birch over either of the other two woods. I see. I see. Uh, what what's Charlie's philosophy been? Because I I know it, there was a 
there's a shift in the game. And again, I, I think it's gone back a little bit. Starting in the 70s, 80s, the the thin the bats really became thin handled and were really all the weight was focused on the barrel. What's his philosophy been? With well, I mean, getting them. Look, it's it's very simple, right? I mean, as the as the players progressed and they got physically more gifted, the pitching became faster. So the bats of 20, 30 years ago were, for most players, not bats that could be used today. They would be too heavy. You have to remember in modern baseball, from the point it leaves the pitcher's hand to the point that it gets to the catcher's mitt is 0.7 seconds. So the bats of years gone by, including the vintage bats and bats in the early to mid-1900s, you'd never be able to get around fast enough to hit the ball. That's why you've got these big barrels and thin handles now. Now, yes, they're not very durable, but when you're a big league player, you're getting those bats for free. The team must purchase your bat for you so they can afford to get them. Now, for our amateur players, we're much more focused on balanced bats and bats that are just better designs for durable designs. But that is the whole reason why you have these big barrel thin handles and why you have more bats breaking. Because once again, just bad physics. You can't have more weight at one end, a little weight at the other, and expect it's going to be as durable as the bat of years gone by that were pretty thick all the way throughout and had thicker handles. How, how particular is Charlie when he selects his wood suppliers uh, for, for his bat? That's well, what he makes Let's put it this way. We've been told by our, we use uh, primarily one mill. We do use a second mill. Um, but our primary mill has told us numerous times that we are the pickiest bat manufacturer when it comes to wood quality. And they kind of said that to us as, you know, you guys are a little bit of a pain about to deal with. But you know what? That's what we want to be known for. That's the type of company I want us to be because it means we're paying that extra special attention to the quality of wood that goes in a player's bat. So how, how bat companies differentiate? You may get a great bat for your pro player, um, but the bat you or I may get may not be as good. Well, I don't believe in that philosophy. I, the wood we use, this premium grade wood, is this the palette of wood we get in, we use for our pros and for our amateurs. So the difference between what we're giving our pros and our amateurs is very minimal. Yes, all bats have to have straight grain. It just may be that the ones that have the most even of spacing in between, yes, those pieces we are pulling for our pros, that's much more about cosmetics than it is about performance. But you can look at some other companies where they're they're buying different grades of wood for their pros versus their amateurs, and then charging their amateurs more for the same models. And I just I just don't believe that's a a way to build a uh, long term customer. And I just believe that lacks integrity. Hmm. Well, has your have you seen a shift in your business from individual purchases to now teams at at all levels buying buying in bulk to supply their teams? Yeah. You know, it's funny. It's more. I think it's more about the time of year. Um, okay. At the beginning of the year, you're dealing a lot more with your pros. By about March, you're starting to see your amateurs roll in. Um, towards the summer, probably more of your youth. Um, certainly, we do a bunch of fungos. You know, bats for uh, coaches to hit uh, pop ups and grounders to their for practice. Um, and we do a large uh, trophy bat business as well. So, non game bat, something you're going to give out as a sales award or hang under wall or something like that. So, you know, it just. I think it's more about the time of year is really what dictates the customer. Okay. What what do you see trending, Seth? As is there becoming more acceptance? It seems like some summer leagues. There are certain summer leagues that will use the wood bats. Yep. Um, specifically, I guess high school and college. What do you, what do you see trending there? Well, I, I think what you're seeing. 
seeing is definitely more wood bat usage. I don't believe the number of people playing wood bat baseball has increased, or excuse me, the number of people playing big ball has increased. I believe what has increased is the number of people who are playing wood bat baseball. So you don't have more players, you just have overall, you just have more players who are using wood bats. So you're seeing a lot more wood bat tournaments pop up at all different ages. We have a fantastic tournament here in town, uh, in Columbus, uh, the, uh, the Worthington Wood Bat Tournament, which you know has grown. I think when we started working with Travis Cox, he does a fantastic job with the tournament. When he started, it was like 20-something teams. This last year, he had 180 in his tournament. So I think what you're finding is you're just seeing more and more teams that want to play wood bat baseball because at the end of the day, they understand, you know, the coaches understand the lessons that are come out of it and the kids get to play real baseball. It becomes not about how much you spend on your bat. It becomes about talent. Um, now, as you get up to the collegiate levels, some of your lower divisions, they actually do use wood bats. But you have to remember, in your division ones, the you know top divisions, money comes into play. Because a lot of these coaches are getting paid and schools are being paid by the metal bat companies to use their bats. Hmm. Um, so it's the will of the people versus the big money of the metal bat companies because the margins on metal bats are tremendously high versus a wood bat. So those people who who are the you know, your usual suspects of the metal bat companies are certainly going to do whatever they can to make sure they maintain uh, their market share. And you know, they can afford to pay the coaches and pay the schools because they know that the, the players are going to follow suit and, and get their bats. Right. But I think, you know, but the scouts, if you ask any scout, they'd much rather see a kid hit with uh, wood because wood is the real indicator of the true talent that they have. So, you know, I think at some point you'll see more and more wood um, bats coming into play. We're certainly seeing more and more of it. Um, will it ever reach Division One Again, will the people versus the... the the big money is spent by metal bat companies to retain market share. Hmm. For the audience out there that are baseball fanatics, what are, what are some players that at the professional level that do use the Phoenix bats? Well, let me talk about one in specifically because we're an Ohio company. We like to tell the Ohio guys. So one of the guys we're most proud of is uh, Adam Eaton. Adam Eaton uh, plays for the Chicago White Sox, which is an Indian fan is a bit painful for me. Um, but he's a super nice guy. Adam actually grew up in Springfield, Ohio. He played his college ball at Miami of Ohio, uh, was drafted by the Diamondbacks, and just shot up through their organization. Um, you know, Adam's a great guy because if you look at his, him statistically as a player, he may not lead in offensive, uh, you know, categories, home runs, things like that. But if you look at his stats that matter, one of the top players in baseball. Um, the other great thing about Adam is he's a really nice guy, very down to earth. He's about 5'9". I thought all ball players were really tall, but he's just a, a normal looking guy, but he's got a lot of hustle, a lot of grit. And the best part about Adam is when he's not hitting well, he gets it that it's him and not the bat. Because a lot of these guys believe it is the inanimate object that is causing them not to hit well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're very familiar with Adam. I work at Miami University, so got to see him play while he was here. Great ball player. Yep, been a super nice guy. I know on your website, Seth, people can take tours, learn more information. Um, if you could talk about the tours, learn more, in, where they can go to learn more information and how they can order a bat if they wish. Yeah, sure. Yep, definitely. Um, so we do tours. Um, we do scheduled tours and open tours. Um, our scheduled tours are basically for people uh, who have groups of 10 or more that would like to schedule a tour at a specific time, uh, typically Monday through Friday. We do those about 9 to uh, 6, you know, 6 p.m. would be the one we want to close up. Um, but, you know, what we realized is a lot of people don't have that many people in their group, so we want to give them the opportunity to come over and, again, see a bat machine, 
um, level of technology they're not going to see anywhere but one other company in the world, and it is not that little company down in Kentucky that you may have heard of. <laughs> so um, we allow people, it's just $10 per person. Um, we give them an hour-long tour. We take them through basically how Charlie founded the business, talk about some of our pros, talk about the woods that we use, how the design process is, is um, changed through the years, and then we actually go in on the shop floor right up in front of the machine and watch uh, watch that's being run. And from there, we'll go into the back of the shop and talk about the finish. Um, so we take them through the entire process. If anybody, any of your listeners have done the Louisville tour, the common um, theme is, yes, we don't have as cool a building. We get that. But as far as the tour goes and the depth that we go and wanting to get people up close, um, we definitely excel at that. We don't have videos to watch. You're not standing behind glass to view something. You're actually getting out there and getting it up in front of it and seeing it, uh, seeing the tours. So those open tours we actually have on Mondays and Fridays at 1.30 and then Wednesday evenings at 6 p.m. People can show up, you know, up till the up till tour time. Anybody who shows up is going to get a tour. We don't have a uh, pecking order when you show up as to who gets a tour. Everybody who shows up uh, does get a tour. Um, you know, I certainly recommend that if you are interested in a tour, you check out our website, which is theexpanse.com, and you'll actually see uh, in the lower right uh, of our of our website, at the very bottom of the page under customer service, there is a uh, right-hand column, second down, is a link for plant tours where there is more information. So again, phoenixbats.com, go under customer service plant tours, and there's a wealth of information there. Do people get to test out the bats? You, you, do you throw pitches to them? No, no, we don't do that. We actually did used to have a batting cage next door where when uh, when people came in to, uh, to purchase a bat, we'd actually take them next door and let them uh, try some bats out. But uh, as the company has grown over the years, we needed more space, and we took uh, took back that area to use for production. So um, I guess, you know, the uh, growth has caused some things to, uh, <laughs> to go by the wayside, but I think that's probably a pretty good reason to uh, reclaim that space. <laughs> uh, out of curiosity... Knowing, for example, the popularity of baseball in Japan, um, Latin America, and those kind of countries, have you made any inroads to foreign markets? Yeah, yep, we actually do do, um, uh, certainly, obviously, you know, uh, Canada, uh, we do ship maps too. Uh, Canada's very interesting in that uh, about 12 years and up, they're actually swinging all wood across Canada, which is really amazing. I wish we were that progressive here in the U.S., but we're not. Um, but yeah, we ship maps all around the world. Uh, you know, there's a winter league down in uh, Dominican Republic. We've done maps for uh, teams and players there. Um, we have done maps uh, in the Asian market through uh, a partner. Uh, very funny, Asian market is very different. Uh, the maps all tend to be, uh, they want them as light as possible, very thin handles. Uh, Knots tend to be really huge, um, so a very different design, and, and probably one of the most interesting things about the Asian market is if there is any slight flaw in the bat, even if it's just a mineral standing up the wood, they believe that the bat has been cursed, and they certainly don't want to accept those bats. So it's a kind of odd um, scenario to work with, it makes it a little more challenging, but every market has its own nuance that you, uh, you pick up on and try to do your best with. I've read a biography where Ted Williams sounds like he was very similar in that if he saw one imperfection, he he shipped it back. So there's certainly people tuned into that. Um, Something that we focus on this show a lot, Seth, and if you could share with the audience, you talked about how your your growth of of Phoenix Bats has been fivefold. What does that mean for, for for the city of Plain Plain City? How many how many employees are working there, and, and what does that mean for the local economy? 
Yep. Well, when we started out, we were a, uh, a well, at least let's put it this way. When I came in, we were a business of three people. Uh, we now employ, I think, eight, maybe nine, because we did just hire a new person in production. So, um, you know, certainly we're, I think, doing our job to, to get money back into the local coffers from, uh, from um, uh, you know, taxes, wage tax, and things like that. We're certainly uh, doing our best to buy as many things as we can uh, locally. Um, we have a fantastic supplier for our decals. Um, we do buy our woods all domestic from domestic sources. We're very, uh, very big on doing as much as we can. Uh, obviously, all American-made, but even getting American uh, resources coming in as well. Uh, for all of our apparel, we work with local companies. So we're really trying to do what we can to support the local businesses. And there's a lot of great businesses here in Ohio and in the Columbus area. Um, and we're those are relationships that we uh, value and continue to uh, to work with those people. We get asked a lot um, by other companies, but at the end of the day, we're trying to share the loyalty back that those people have uh, shown the loyalty to us uh, when we were uh, a smaller company than we were today. That, that's wonderful. Um, what's the best business advice you could give the audience if you have one single mantra that you follow? Uh, you know, for me, probably the biggest one is, is understand who your customer is. Basically, sell to the right person at the right time at the right amount. Um, and and you know, if we're doing that, we can be successful. It's it, it sounds pretty simplistic, but it's amazing to me how many people wander away from that principle. Uh, we've been asked many times to do other things, but you know, those are distractions. And when you're a growing business, the you want to do anything you can to bring in revenue and chase after any possible opportunity and sell to whoever at whatever price. But it's not really a good business strategy. Um, you end up having a very short-term customer who uh, is not loyal. You end up uh, giving away margin that you don't need to give, give away. So for us, it's really, you know, stay, stay focused, uh, do the right things. Don't, you know, the definition of insanity is don't do the same things over and over again that you've done before and think all of a sudden they're going to they're gonna turn out different. Again, a very simplistic idea uh, that's been out there for years and years, but I'm always stunned um, when I hear about some of the businesses that we know of and, and the way they're approaching it. It's just, you know, you understand why they fail. I mean, great example, Louisville Slugger, um, who is the you know, big dog in the space, was sold last year to a company over in Finland. This is an iconic brand, an iconic American brand. It was sold at a price that stunned me. And I think, admittedly, it's probably was a, you know, they were a family-run business, and there's nothing wrong with that. But when you're myopic and don't, you know, don't look to see what's going on in the market around you, then unfortunately that's what happens. Your your big brands, um, unfortunately, are no longer American companies. That's great advice, Seth. Uh, if the audience wanted to reach out to you directly, do you have a phone number, or email you care to share? Yep. Yeah, sure. You can. Uh, our our phone number here at the shop is eight seven seven five nine eight two two eight seven, and they can certainly reach me at Seth S E T H at phoenixbats dot com. Well, Seth, I really enjoyed the opportunity to interview you today. If you can hold the line as I sign off, that would be great. Yeah, no problem, Rob. I very much enjoyed it, and hopefully, I get to interact with your uh, your listeners soon enough. Great. Thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohioan Show. This was episode 55, and we today we interviewed Seth with the Phoenix Bat Company. And great interview, great company, great product, and hopefully you can try it out and, and hear what the rave reviews are about. Thank you for listening. Have a great day.